the love of reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Read for you by Linda Pack. I am going to read to you selections from The Soul of the Night, An Astronomical Pilgrimage, a collection of 20 essays by Chet Ramo, an astronomer, a Boston Globe science columnist, and a professor emeritus of physics and astronomy at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. Chet Ramo has written 18 books on science and nature and four novels. I'm going to read selections from five of these exquisite essays, and I'm going to pause in between each section for a few reasons. We're going to need to do updates from when this book was written and published in 1992, because a lot of things have happened since 1992 in the scientific understanding of the universe. I mean, think the moon landing was mm, 51 years ago. There's been SpaceX. There's been the sighting of a new comet. And I'm also going to pause so that we can reorient ourselves in the space-time continuum and take a moment to absorb the magnitude of Chet Ramo's observations of our place in our universe. The essays I will read from are An Ancient Brilliance, which is about the Big Flash and quasars. The Shape of the Night, which is about lunar eclipses. Hidden Matter, which is about the Milky Way and Dark Matter. The Bird and the Fish, about the constellations, especially the constellations of the summer sky. But we will begin at the beginning with the preface. Contemporary astronomy provides cautious answers to some of the roomiest questions humans ask about the universe. What is the universe? Where did it come from? How will it end? What is it made of? And what is this thing called life that dances on the surface of creation like an abiding flame? The answers from the new astronomy present us with sweeps of space and time that seem wildly incommensurate with the human scale. Here are stars in uncountable numbers, each perhaps warming Earth's unseen, other Earth's teeming with other life. Here are galaxies where stars by the hundreds of billions are born in gassy nebulas and die in violence. Here are galaxies arrayed in knots and streamers across light years, across billions of light years, like motes of dust dancing in window light, worlds and worlds without end, reaching at last back to that singular moment when all that now exists came to be in a blinding flash of pure creation. It is easy to be overawed by the visions of the new astronomy. Many among us would prefer to retreat into a comfortable cloud of unknowing. But if we are truly interested in knowing who we are, then we must be brave enough to accept what our senses and our reason tell us. We must enter into the universe of the galaxies and light years, even at the risk of spiritual vertigo. 
and know what, after all, must be known. But to know is only half. To love is the other half. The pages that follow are an exercise in knowing and loving, a personal pilgrimage into the darkness and the silence of the night sky in quest of a human meaning. It is a quest rewarded with fleeting revelations, intimations of grace, and brief encounters with something greater than ourselves, a force, a beauty, and a grandeur that draw us into rapturous contemplation of the most distant celestial objects. And occasionally, if we're lucky, the quest is rewarded with a special translucent moment when the grandeur that abides in the night flares out, in the words of the poet, like shining from shook foil. The pilgrimage is one that each of us must make alone, into the realm of the stars and galaxies, to the limits of the universe, to that boundary of space and time where the mind and the heart encounter the ultimate mystery. It is a pilgrimage in quest of the soul of the night. Now, before I read the next section, which is about the Big Flash and quasars, and we say the Big Flash rather than the Big Bang because, you know, no sound in space. But light? Oh, yeah. Some, I would like to define a few words that if you were reading them, of course, you wouldn't have a problem. But when you hear them out loud, you might say, uh, what? So the first is spectra, not spectrums. It is the plural of spectrum. And spectra um, is are the breaking of light into wavelengths. Humans can see red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet with the naked eye. But the wavelengths get shorter as they shift in direction towards the blue, towards the blue, indigo, violet side. They get squashed up. They get longer, the wavelengths, towards the red end, the red, orange, yellow. They stretch out. And this effect is called the Doppler effect. And we mostly encounter this, as human beings, in sound. We hear a high pitch as the waves are squashed up on the approach of a sound, and then the pitch gets lower as it recedes and stretches out, like when a car goes by. So that is what we mean when we say spectra redshift. An ancient brilliance. In the beginning, there was light. In the first moments of creation, subatomic particles flickered in and out of existence against a background of radiation. The universe was a seething fireball of matter and energy. One second after the beginning, the temperature of the universe had dropped to a chilly 10 billion degrees, and the creation of matter ceased. Protons, electrons, and neutrons danced upon a sea of light, and still the universe was filled with blinding radiation. When a million years had passed, the universe had cooled to the point where charged particles could hold together against the pressure of that radiant energy, 
against the flash of the new, against the all-splitter. Electrons linked with nuclei to form atoms, and the hard stuff of the universe was born, mostly in the form of hydrogen and helium. Now, this was light stuff, to be sure, the stuff that floats balloons. But now the universe had a foundation, a bedrock of atomic matter on which to build bone and nail. The rain of light subsided. The universe became transparent. But there was still to be another chapter to the ancient brilliance. Sometime within the next billion years, the galaxies began to form, and not long after that, so did the quasars. The quasars are the most distant objects yet observed. Nature has provided us with a way to see back into the early days of the universe. It takes time for light from distant sources to reach the Earth. When astronomers look at distant objects through their telescopes, they are looking backward into time. The stars are light years away. The galaxies are millions of light years distance. The quasars are removed from us by billions of light years and therefore by billions of light years of time. Quasars were discovered in 1963 by Martin Schmidt of the California Institute of Technology. Schmidt caught on photographic plates the light spectra of a few star-like objects that had attracted the attention of astronomers by their copious emission of radio energy. The objects were dubbed quasi-stellar radio sources, or quasars for short. The spectra of these objects were unfamiliar. They were unlike the spectra of any other stars nor did the colors of the spectra match the radiation of known forms of matter. Astronomers were baffled. Then with a sudden insight, Schmidt recognized that in the enigmatic spectra were the disguised features of the spectrum of hydrogen. But the pattern of wavelengths, typical of hydrogen radiation, had been shifted drastically toward the red, the long wavelength end of the spectrum. The lengthening of the wavelengths could only be the Doppler effect, the stretching out of wavelengths of the light because of a motion of separation between the source and the observer. So, if all of these objects are receding from us, it must be because they share in the general expansion of the universe. The unusually large shift of the spectrum signified to Schmidt that the objects were very far away, more distant than anything previously observed. They were farther away than the most distant visible galaxies. Their light had been traveling toward us since early in the history of the universe. What could these objects be, beckoning across eons and tantalizing us with a mysterious glimpse of an earlier era? From their flickering light, astronomers could deduce that the quasars are small, perhaps no larger than our solar system. And yet they are a thousand times more luminous than entire galaxies, brighter than a hundred billion suns. The cosmological distances of the quasars are now almost universally accepted. 
But no one yet knows the true nature of these strange objects, these enigmatic travelers from the epic of creation. There is a growing consensus that quasars are the bright nuclei of very distant galaxies. Or perhaps they are chains of supernovas, detonating in the star-rich central regions of galaxies that are too far away to be otherwise visible. More likely, they signal the infall of matter into central black holes, massive centers of gravitational attraction at the cores of young galaxies, bottomless gravitational pits. Plunging to oblivion, the infalling matter sheds the enormous amounts of energy that power the quasars. If the black hole model of the quasars is correct, then a typical stage in the evolution of young galaxies was the formation of massive central black holes. Stars fell toward these colossal cosmic sinks, whirling into them like water circling a drain, accelerating to nearly the speed of light, shedding abundant energy in the form of radiation of all wavelengths, Millions upon millions of stars fell to oblivion in the open mouths of the galactic black holes. These spasms of violence that mark the creation of the galaxies have now mostly subsided, and galaxies, our Milky Way included, have settled down to a more tranquil existence. Surveys have shown that the number of quasars in the sky increases with distance. Apparently, these objects were more common in the early universe than today. Not only were there more quasars in the ancient universe, but they were also more luminous. We can envy the brilliance of those early skies. The galaxies were closer together than they are now, and they burned with the light of many hot blue stars. At the centers of those great wheels of light, streams of matter plunged into black holes, pulled by gravity into knots of incredible density and permanent blackness. Stars, planets, moons, rain and wind all absconded, gone. As the matter fell, it gave off energy that caused the galactic nuclei to glow with a light greater than that of all the stars in the heavens. The universe blazed with those luminous beacons. It was a time of light. Let's have a little update from when Chet Remo wrote that exquisite piece on the ancient brilliance of the heavens. And let's go to April 10th of 20, 2019 when scientists obtained the first image of a black hole using observations by, by, made by the Event Horizon Telescope. Now, the Event Horizon Telescope is not one thing. It is an international collaboration of eight ground-based radio telescopes, a planet-scale array designed to specifically capture images of a black hole, and they did. You can see it online Go look. It will amaze you. The image shows a bright ring formed as the light bends in the intense gravity around a black hole that is 6.5 billion times more massive than our sun. This long-sought image provides the strongest evidence to date for the existence of supermassive black holes. 
Now, before I read the next section, which is about eclipses, I want to give you another, another definition of a word I had to look up to know how to pronounce. The word is ephemerides, and an ephemerides was a book. It's, in fact, books that are tabulations of the day-to-day -day positions of heavenly bodies are still called ephemerides. This was one of the earliest, and it was compiled by a German astronomer who called himself Regiomontanus. He was German. He called himself Regiomontanus. What can you do? This book was printed and published in 1474, and that was less than 25 years after the invention of Gutenberg's printing press. So consider just how many people and who those people were who would have owned such a volume. As you listen to The Shape of the Night. The night has a shape, and that shape is a cone. In the lyrical play Prometheus Unbound by the English poet Shelley, which was written in 1820, the earth speaks this line. I spin beneath my pyramid of night, which points into the heavens, dreaming delight. When I first read that line many years ago, I was startled by the recognition of something I knew I had possessed all along. I had studied astronomy and optics. I knew about umbras and penumbras and the way objects cast shadows and different kinds of light. In my astronomy classes, I had drawn the necessary triangles to calculate the relative sizes and distances of the sun and the earth and the moon. I suppose I'd known all along that the Earth's shadow is cone-shaped and points darkly into sunlit space. But until I read Shelley's line, I had never experienced night as a tall pyramid of darkness receding from the globe. The Earth wears night like a wizard's cap. The wizard's cap is long and slim and points away from the sun. It is 8,000 miles in diameter at the rim, where it fits snugly on the Earth's brow. It extends to a point 860,000 miles from the Earth. The wizard's cap of shadow is 100 times taller than it is wide at the base. It reaches out three times farther from the Earth than the distance to the orbit of the moon. And when the moon, in its monthly circuit, happens to pass through that cap of darkness, we have an eclipse of the moon. In May of 1503, in his fourth voyage to the New World, after many trials and adventures, Christopher Columbus sailed with two ships east from Panama, intending to stop at the island of Hispaniola for refitting before returning to Spain. But crippled by storm and riddled with worms, the little fleet was run ashore on the north coast of Jamaica. Columbus sent 12 men in canoes to seek rescue from the island of Hispaniola, which was 200 miles further to the east. And then for months, they waited with the remainder of his men, they waited for rescue. To obtain food, 
the Spaniards bartered beads and mirrors with the local Indians, but eventually the natives tired of trinkets and balked at providing provisions for the stranded sailors. Columbus saw a solution to the problem. He had with him a copy of Reggio Montes's Ephemerides, which contained a prediction for an eclipse of the moon at moonrise on the night of February 29th, 1504. Columbus called a meeting of the local chiefs and declared that if food were not forthcoming, he would cause the moon to rise inflamed with wrath. On that leap year night of February 29th, 1504, the moon rose just at sunset and slipped into the shadow of the earth. It was the color of blood. Unlike other shadows, the shadow of the earth is red. It is stained the color of blood by long, wave, long wavelength sunlight, refracted by the atmosphere around the curve of the earth. As Columbus and the Indians watched, the earth's red-stained shadow moved across the face of the full moon, and the moon was transformed from a gold doubloon to a dusky disk of crimson. I have, on many occasions, watched eclipses of the moon. The effect is spooky, mysterious. If I had not known about the cone of night, I would have been just as chastened as the Indians of Jamaica. And when I next watched the moon eclipsed, it was Shelley's poem I recalled, not an astronomy text. The curved surface of the Earth's pyramidal shadow moved across the moon's full face and traced cone-shaped night. Night has not been the same since. Now night has a shape. It is the difference between knowing and seeing. This next section is about the Milky Way and dark matter and dark energy. And when Chet Ramo writes about this, he talks about waiting for the Perseid showers. My own experiences of waiting for the annual Perseid meteor shower, my own personal experiences, um, are, are iffy. Um, I, I, have, uh, I have had to bundle up. Um, and be very, 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 very patient and get chilly and a little bored um, because, you know, you're staring at this, you're waiting for something to happen, you think. You're actually observing for a phenomenal astronomical event. The annual Perseid shower peaks usually on the early mornings of mid-August, and we know that the Perseids tend to be bright, so you can see up to 40 to 50 meteors per hour, maybe, um, if you're lucky. Meteor showers, which come from streams of debris left behind in space by comets, are visible often for at least 10 days before or after the peak mornings. But it is cold out there in the dark. But one of the things that I have learned from waiting and watching is that as long as I'm outside at night and looking... Oh, how beautiful is the deep beauty of the summer night sky spread above. And here's what else I can sometimes see. I can sometimes see the International Space Station. 
and so can you. NASA will now send you, if you ask them to politely by uh, via the internet, a message to your phone or your email to tell you when to go outside and look for the International Space Station. For 20 years, humans have been orbiting the Earth, and you can wave to them, and I do. And so now here is what our guide, Chet Ramo, sees when he looks into the summer sky. And he calls this section Hidden Matter. On a night during the peak of August's annual Perseid meteor showers, my son and I slept under the open sky. It was a night of exceptional clarity, far from the lights and haze of the city. Meteors flashed against a background of stars so numerous that the heavens seemed more light than darkness. Above our heads, the Milky Way arched from Cassiopeia in the north to Sagittarius in the south. It was a dark, shoaled river of light, a luminous drapery of diamond dust on black velvet. As the hours passed and the stars tilted toward the west, we could almost feel ourselves whirled in the bright vortex of the galaxy. For the ancients of all cultures, the Milky Way, the Via Galactica, was a bridge, a road, or a river. It has been suggested that these images are closely related to the idea of human life as a journey or a voyage between two worlds. Life is a bridge, says the Zen master. Build no house upon it. And to the endless journey of the universe itself toward an unknown destination. It is a powerful evocative symbolism that goes a long way toward making us feel at home among the stars. The modern view of the Milky Way is no less evocative. Our sun is one star in a disc-shaped swarm of several hundred billion stars. This disc is 100,000 light-years in diameter. The stars in the disc are clustered in spiral arms that turn about the center like a pinwheel. Our sun, which is the center of our galaxy, makes the circular journey about the axis of this disk every 250 million years. The space in between the stars is strewn with dust and gas, and it is out of this rich reservoir of material that the stars are born. I have often constructed a model of the Milky Way galaxy on a classroom floor by pouring a box of salt in a pinwheel pattern. The demonstration is impressive, but the scale is wrong. If a grain of salt were to accurately represent a typical star, then the separate grains should be thousands of feet apart. A numerically and dimensionally precise model of the galaxy would require 10,000 boxes of salt scattered in a flat circle larger than the cross-section of the Earth. On the scale of the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system is a moat of dust riding a whirlwind, a grain of salt in a salty sea. All of the stars that my son and I saw on that star-powdered night when we slept under the open sky, the thousands of stars that can be seen on the best of nights, are but our nearest stellar neighbors in one arm of the circular tide. 
So bright was the Milky Way in earlier, darker times that people who lived in southern latitudes made dark constellations out of the rifts that interrupt the river of light. Australian Aborigines saw the enormous figure of an emu in the dark regions of the central Milky Way. <laughs> These gulfs of darkness that we somewhat less poetically call the coal sack. The Quechua-speaking Indians of Peru recognized several dark constellations in the gaps of the Milky Way, including a bird, a fox, a baby llama, a toad, and a serpent. Spanish conquistadors dismissed the Inca descriptions of the dark figures. The starless voids did not correspond to the European idea of what a constellation should be. Where Europeans saw broken light, the Indians saw bounded darkness. When Galileo turned his telescope upon the Milky Way in the winter of 1610, he was astonished to see that band of pale light resolved into stars, stars apparently uncountable in number individually. They are beyond the limit of unaided vision. It is the collected light of these myriad stars in the plane of the galactic disk that we see as a luminous river encircling the celestial sphere. The concentration of obscuring dust and gas in the central part of the disk, especially in the direction of Sagittarius, breaks the stream of the Milky Way with islands of darkness. Stars are now counted on photographic plates with computer-controlled scanning light beams. These new techniques have enabled astronomers to catalog stars a hundred times fainter than in previous reliable determinations. Observations of the motions of objects in the outer reaches of the galaxy, bright stars, clusters of stars, and clouds of molecular gas, enable astronomers to refine their calculations of the galaxy's total mass. The result of these calculations was a surprise. Astronomers discovered that the greater part of the contents of the Milky Way had previously eluded us and was hiding in the darkness between the luminous stars. It turns out that the Milky Way galaxy contains at least 30 times more mass than had been previously estimated. It is filled with non-luminous mass that manifests itself only through the inescapable pull of its gravity. How could so much matter? 95% of the massy substance of the galaxy have gone undetected until now, hiding in the darkness, the way the constellations of the Incas eluded the light-struck Spaniards. The answer is that the newly discovered mass must consist of some exotic forms of non-radiant matter, not stars, which we would certainly see ablaze in the heavens, nor interstellar gas and dust, which we would observe by their own radiation or by the absorption of light from distant sources. What, then, is this hidden component of the universe, this dark matter that constitutes the greatest part of all that exists. The truth is that astronomers do not yet have any idea of what this stuff is that holds the stars in their galactic orbits. Perhaps 
the dark component of the Milky Way galaxy consists of some as yet unknown type of celestial body, larger than grains of dust, but smaller than the smallest stars. Or perhaps the dark mass consists of black holes, stars that have collapsed into themselves and become so dense that light cannot escape the pull of their gravity. If the newly discovered non-luminous or dark matter of the Milky Way is typical of other galaxies, and there is reason to believe that it is, we will have to drastically increase our estimate of the mass of the universe. The visible stars are only a small fraction of what exists. Most of the mass of the Milky Way galaxy is invisible to us, lying in the darkness at the end of dreams. And it's time for another update. And as with many of these updates from the 1992 publication of The Soul of the Night that I'm giving you, it comes from NASA, one of the greatest things that the United States government gives to its people for free. Um, NASA has a wonderful, wonderful website. And this stuff comes from NASA for Kids. And here's what they have to say about dark holes, dark matter, and dark energy. There is stuff out there in space that has gravity. We can see its pull on matter like stars and galaxies, but it's not regular matter. It's not a black hole. It's not anything we've ever heard of, but it's definitely there. Scientists name this stuff dark matter. We don't know a whole lot about dark matter, but it seems that 27% of the universe, or about one quarter, is made up of the strange stuff. In 1998, we learned from observations of supernovae that the universe is actually accelerating. Most of the energy in the universe is not in the form of matter, dark or otherwise, at all, but rather in the form of some stubbornly persistent stuff that may be driving this expansion, We've dubbed that mysterious stuff dark energy. We don't know much about dark energy either, but we do know there is a lot of it. Dark energy makes up 68%, about two-thirds of the universe. Together, dark energy and dark matter make up 95% of the universe. That's almost all of it. That leaves only a small 5%. For all the matter and energy we know and understand, energy like light, heat, and x-rays, together with matter like people and elephants and planet Earth and the sun and all the galaxies only makes up 5% of the universe. And that's not very much. So before I read the last section, which is about the constellations, I, I want to say that my own personal first constellation, and maybe it was yours too, was the Big Dipper. I finally saw it from the window of the attic room I shared with my big sister at Grandma's house in the country. But since I was nearsighted, I really couldn't see it very well with my glasses off until I came across this book called The Stars, A New Way to See Them by... H.A. Ray, yes, the man who gave us Curious George, also has given us the 
best book on identifying the constellations. It is still in print. It was published in 1952, and H.A. Ray will connect the dots for you. If you want to know what the constellations look like, you can't lose with the stars, a new way to see them. It will open your eyes. And now, the last essay I'm going to read to you from Chet Ramos, The Soul of the Night, The Bird and the Fish. The brilliance of the summer Milky Way in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius only hints at the great density of stars that cluster near the center of our spiral galaxy. Dust and gas in the central plane of the galactic disk obscures our eye's view of the nucleus. But radio and X-ray telescopes have penetrated the obscuring matter and revealed a powerful source of energy, a monstrous pulsing heart for the galaxy, a core of violence that recapitulates the violence of creation itself. The nucleus of the Milky Way galaxy is apparently the site for cosmic convulsions on the grand scale, perhaps a place where countless suns are swallowed up by a massive gravitational black hole. Man has always seen his dreams in the Milky Way. To the Egyptians, the Milky Way was wheat spread by Isis. To the Eskimos, a fall of snow. Bushmen saw campfire ashes, and the Arabs, a river. On warm summer nights, I have explored the Milky Way with binoculars and telescope. I have pored over observatory photographs of the extraordinary objects that float in this river light, and I've sought them in the sky. The summer Milky Way holds delicate gifts. Just at dusk, the two great birds of the summer return, the swan and the eagle, Cygnus and Aquila, and they skim the eastern air. This is the part of the night sky I know best, the sash of the summer Milky Way flowing in two bright streamers from north to south and gashed by the dark rift. Here is the blue and gold binary star Albirio, a single point of light to the naked eye, but in the small telescope, it is two stupendous suns, one star 760 times more luminous than our sun. The other is 120 times brighter. Sapphire and topaz, 55 solar systems could be lined up in the space that separates this double gem. Here is the Veil Nebula, a lace of a filamentary gas in the shape of a question mark, delicate as mist. It is the shredded envelope of an exploded star. 30,000 years ago, a star 1,500 light-years away blew itself to bits. The region is banked with stars, puddled with light, shoaled with stardust. There are fish here that flick the light years with their tails, birds with galaxies tucked like pin feathers under their wings. I stand in the dooryard, and the wilderness is mine. I walk a dark road on a high hill, and the stars of Callisto, of the Big Dipper, burn with the intensity of a welder's arc. The dippers spin 
on the northern pole like a Ferris wheel, now diving toward the horizon, now flying high into the air. The ancient story tells us that beautiful Callisto was a huntress who roamed the mountains of Acadia in search of game. Zeus, the greatest of the gods of ancient Greece, lusted for the mortal Callisto. Hera, the wife of Zeus, became jealous of her husband's adulterous obsession and changed the unfortunate Callisto into a bear. As a bear, Callisto cowered in the forest, terrified of both man and beast. But one day, while hunting in the, wind, in the woods, her human son, Arcus, came upon her, and happy Callisto stood up on her hind legs to welcome him. But thinking himself attacked, Arcus readied his bow to shoot her. Zeus, looking down from Olympus, saw the terrible event unfolding and with instantaneous magic changed Arcus into a little bear and his mother into a great pair. Then Zeus flung them high through the air in whirlwinds to the high heavens and fixed them there, fixed forever in the form of bears, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. Last night, in a sweet wind, I stood beside my door and swept Sagittarius with my binoculars. I was looking into the very nucleus of the galaxy, where, if astronomers are right, a black hole hides in banks of stars. It was one of those perfect nights when, even without optical aid, the star clouds of Sagittarius are prominent. What I saw was a galaxy of worlds without end, a labyrinth with a minotaur at center, a labyrinth with 500 billion blind turns, and no one has the thread. No wonder our ancestors imagined they saw birds and fish in the night sky, the swan and the dolphin, the eagle and the whale, the little horse, the water carrier, the liar, the wolf. There are 88 official constellations, 88 comfortable projections of ourselves onto the wilderness of night. There was a time when we could believe that the Milky Way was a bridge between heaven and earth. No more. In the Milky Way there are a thousand billion earths and one monstrously indifferent heaven. Yet, I am a child of the Milky Way. The night is my mother. I am made of the dust of stars. Every atom in my body was forged in a star. When the first galaxies fell into luminous clumps, already matter was struggling towards consciousness. The star cloud in Sagittarius, they are like a burning bush. If there is a voice in Sagittarius, I'd be a fool not to listen. I'll sit back on a dark hillside and wait and watch. A hint here, a trait there, listening and watching, waiting, always waiting for the tingle in the spine. And now, as a summation... I want to give you the five points that Chet Ramo put in his core curriculum for his astronomy course in 2004. Point one. The universe is big. 
Human space is not cosmic space. The universe is old. Human time is not cosmic time. The universe evolves galaxies, stars, planets, life, consciousness. The universe perceived by the senses is all we can know. The more we learn about the universe, including ourselves, the more we understand the depths of our ignorance. And the fifth point, the more we learn, the more we appreciate the universe as the revelation of a mystery worthy of our wonder, awe, reverence, and praise. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, The Soul of the Night. The material read on For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, edited, and performed by Linda Pack. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org. There you will also find a bibliography of the readings heard in this edition of for the love of reading. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.